We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke this morning. We have come today to chapter 15, and uh, you know I don't have I don't have real hard data to prove this, but it's possible that chapter 15 contains the three most beloved passages in the Gospel of Luke, uh, in especially the last story. Jesus will tell three stories in this chapter, and the last one is perhaps the most famous, the most beloved. It is certainly the one that has had the most um, usage in culture all over the place. Of course, I'm talking about, if you don't know, I'm talking about the story of the prodigal son. That's the, that's the name we've given it. And we use that term, right? That's become common cultural lingo. We talk about, oh, he's a prodigal. She's a prodigal. We use that term often. Of course, Jesus doesn't use the term, but that's what the church has called it for a long time. Uh, this story was Shakespeare's favorite Bible passage. He referred to the story of the prodigal son more than anyone else. But you don't. You can look uh, much more recently and, and much farther than Shakespeare and find that the story of the prodigal son is everywhere. Um, I've been reading this book on Luke written by a guy who's a, a literature professor uh, at, you know, at the University of Chicago. And he, he just says in a sentence, he doesn't prove it, he just says, uh, this story shows up in every work of literature. I'm like, oh, that's probably a little. But, uh, you know, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, gosh, Disney loves this story. I can make a case that the movie Frozen is a retelling of the story of the prodigal son. Uh, we could go beyond Disney and, and look at other classic stories and classic movies. You could look at, you know, A, a River Runs Through It is a great you know, telling of the story of the prodigal son. It is all over the place. And because of that, it's a story that uh, we, we think we get. It's a story that we think, yeah, I got, I got it. I've got the main point. And the main point that you, if you love this story, the main point that you get, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you you're wrong about that, okay? This isn't one of those days where I try to take apart everything that you think about the story and, and put it back together again. Um, the reasons that you love it are beautiful, if you love it. And I hope that you will um, find more reasons to love it. Um, when Jesus told this story, to his listeners, he was he was retelling a whole bunch of stories that they knew too. Did, Jesus w wasn't just telling a story out of uh, thin air. He was, he was telling the story of, of Cain and Abel. He was telling the story of Isaac and Ishmael, the story of Jacob and Esau, the story of Joseph and his brothers, the story of, of the people of Judah and the people of Israel. He was retelling the stories of their own people, but he was messing with the categories. So, okay, I don't want to get, I know I haven't even read the passage yet. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We need to read these stories. Uh, I want to invite you, even though I said I'm not going to try to dismantle everything you think about these stories, I want to invite you to attempt to hear them with new ears. After all, when Jesus explained why he speaks in parables at the beginning of Luke, he, his disciples, you know, they, they want him to explain a certain parable, and he says, yeah, to you I've given the secrets of the kingdom of God. 
But to them, I, you know, to the, the masses, us, I speak in parables so that although they see, they may not see. Although they hear, they may not understand. Whatever else this means, it means that the way to grasp even these parables that we think we know so well is to hear with the ears that he gives us, to see with the eyes that he gives us. We need him to help us see. So, let's take a breath and listen to the three great stories of Luke 15. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go look for the one that is lost until he finds it? Then when he has found it, he places it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Returning home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, telling them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search thoroughly until she finds it? Then when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have food enough to spare, but here I am dying from hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him, and his heart went out to him. He ran and hugged his son and kissed him. Then, he said, then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Hurry, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the slaves and asked what was happening. The slave replied, well, your brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry 
and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this moment, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, yet again we ask, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Have your way in the preaching of the word, for you, in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. The scene at the start of this passage is, uh, you know, is becoming fairly typical in the book of Luke. There are disreputable people gathering around Jesus and the religious elite don't like it. And I'll explain later that they have reason not to like it. They, they don't like it. And so when Jesus notices how they are reacting, he tells these stories. And what is the point of the story? Why does Jesus tell these three stories? They're all meant to work together. They're all meant to prove a point together. What is he trying to get them to do? Here's the point. Jesus wants his hearers to participate in the Father's love. That's what he wants. Jesus wants his hearers to participate in the Father's love. And maybe that's what you think he's saying. But it's more than just he wants them to see themselves as one of the sons and to come into the Father's party. It's that he wants his hearers to be like the Father. And here's my proof. He opens the stories with this line. Which of you, if he has a hundred sheep? This is how Jesus likes to talk to the Pharisees. We've heard him in a couple different scenes on the Sabbath when he's healed someone on the Sabbath and he's getting some criticism for it. He will say to them, which of you, if he has an ox, would not do this? If he has a sheep, would not do that? He, he loves to do this to the Pharisees and the religious elite. They're actually the guys who own the livestock. In fact, it was big business for them. I mean, it, most of the sheep that were out in the fields, you know, on that night when, when the angels came to the shepherds were owned by the high priest Caiaphas. He had this big business going. He's raising the sheep. He's also making money when the sheep get sold. It's the big, big business. So he's speaking to guys who are involved in this business. Which of you, if he has a hundred sheep, he wants them to listen as the person who has lost the thing. That's how he wants them to listen, and that's how he wants us to listen. Listen as the shepherd. Listen as 
the woman. Listen as the father. But that's, there's a problem with that, you guys. You see, we've heard these enough that we don't think they're weird stories. But they are weird stories. Jesus says, listen, you know, which of you, if you had 100 sheep, would not leave 99 in an open pasture to look for one? All of these sensible religious leaders, all of these educated, literate guys, the, the likely answer to them is, for, from them is, well, not me. I wouldn't are you kidding? leave 99 in the open pasture and go after one. As one author said, you know, writing about this, he said, well, then they've got 99 lost sheep on the other side. Like that's, it's, it's irresponsible. It's nonsensical. The shepherd leaves 99 for one. And then the parties afterward don't make sense. I'm, you know, I uh, spent a lot of time talking with Stephen this week about this passage. And, and you know, he, he was talking about um, sports teams that are, you know, uh, uh, consistently win each year, year after year after year. Like, you know, Alabama football or, or not the Broncos, you know, whatever. Um, and here's what, here's what happens for those fans who they just have a history of winning. When they win a game... They don't celebrate, they're relieved. It's a different experience. Guys, I'm a Nuggets fan. When the Nuggets won last year, like, I, I was pumped. We did not expect this. This is wonderful. But you, ex, you, know, they, you're, you, you don't celebrate when you find the thing you lost. You are relieved. The parties don't make sense. <laughs> Frankly, if you go to the second party, the, the woman with the coins... Her party makes even less sense. She has 10 coins. Each coin is probably worth about one week's wages. And so when she loses a tenth of it, she scours her house, she finds it, and what does she do? She throws a big party, which possibly costs a week's worth of wages. Right? It's, it's nonsense. It's irresponsible. How can she justify a party? But the shepherd and the woman, they're nothing compared to the father in the third story. I mean, for, for a reasonable person listening to that story for the first time, almost everything the father does is irresponsible. The first conversation, when the son comes to him and says, give me my share of the inheritance, the father's answer should be, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> no. You can't have your share of the inheritance. And plus, you're the younger son. It all goes to your big brother, and he will figure out how to take care of the rest of the family. You don't get anything. Not right now. And presumably, based on the way this son behaves, he has a good idea of what's going to happen if he loads him up with cash. It's nonsense. And of course, his astonishing response upon his son's return appears to be rewarding bad behavior, right? I mean, parents have to think about this all the time. You know, if you, if you make too big of a deal over something that, that kind of includes the bad behavior, are you reinforcing that? Well, they'll repeat that cycle over and over again. Go for it. 
Friends, if we are thinking of these stories in terms of what is good and bad, what's economical or responsible or disciplined, the shepherd and the woman and the father, what they do is hard to grasp. Perhaps we can quote the Apostle Paul here. He, he later says, uh, the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are still playing by those rules, the gospel is foolishness. Foolish like throwing a party and, you know, instead of inviting your friends and family, inviting the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame. Foolish like blessing those who curse you. Foolish like loving your enemies. Friends, this is an invitation for us to grasp the Father's heart. If we could really enter into this, and like we pray each week, show the world what he is like. That's what Jesus wants for us out of this. He wants us to participate in the heart of the Father. So how do we participate? If we're to think like the shepherd, the woman, the father, well, first, he, he wants us to be in a mindset where we celebrate when lost things are found, to be overjoyed that sinners and tax collectors are gathering around Jesus. But this is, this is a tall order for um, faithful biblical people. Um, the first psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, I don't know why I needed to say that twice. Did you know the first psalm is Psalm 1? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an amazing thing. Uh, it, you know, it's often viewed as an introduction to all of the psalms. It's, it's a wisdom psalm. Here's the right way to live. And it says, blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers or, you know, take the path that the, the unrighteous take. You know, the one who's blessed is the one who avoids the bad company because bad company corrupts. And here, bad company is coming around Jesus. So it makes sense that the guys who are trying to follow the rules are slowly backing away. Whoa, what are you doing? Don't you remember Psalm 1? We want to be blessed. But to join in the heart of the Father, we need to hear that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, at the end of these stories, the last thing that we see is one guy out in the cold in the dark, right? The, the other two stories end with a big party and everybody's happy. And the third story, we're left outside. You know, the, the party's happening over there and we're left looking at this guy sulking in the dark the older brother. He is the most lost of all. And when something is lost, it has one hope, repentance. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So the first step to participating in the Father's heart is repentance. But what really is repentance? What do we mean? Do we mean being really sorry for what we've done? Do we mean cleaning up our act? Is that what we mean? I think that's what a lot of us think that we mean when we say repentance. Turn around, do something different, clean up your act. 
let's talk about what repentance is by first looking at what it isn't in these stories. All right? What it isn't. First of all, repentance is a strange thing when you think of the story of the sheep and the coin. And that's where Jesus uses the word repentance. The sheep didn't come wandering home. The coin didn't find itself. It had to be searched for, both of them. The the owner of the thing searched and scoured to find it. They were lost completely. And it's in those stories that Jesus uses the word repentance. The moral of the story after the sheep and the coin is there's tons of joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Here's what we understand about repentance thanks to, uh, you know, the rest, the, the writings of the rest of the New Testament. Repentance is something that happens to dead people. It starts for those who are dead in their trespasses. Just like a lost sheep is a dead sheep and a lost coin is a dead asset. That's the first thing that repentance isn't. It's not somehow finding ourselves. Not in these stories. And if we look at what the son does in the third story, you know, that seems the most relatable as far as repentance uh, repentance isn't what he planned to do. It, it, what he thinks is his low point, when he's, you know, wanting to eat the pig food, you know, the n- pigs are unclean animals, the story is disgusting in many ways to Jewish listeners. You've probably heard that if you've heard any talk about this parable before. But, but at his low point, when he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating, He doesn't repent at that moment, you guys. He hatches a plan. That's what he's doing. He says, here's what I'll do. I'll go to my father. I'll act real sorry. And then I'll tell him what he should do in response. Listen to this in, in, uh, in verse 18 and 19. All right? He says this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. Why does he say that? Because he just said to himself, wait, even the hired workers in my father's house have three squares a day. Like, why not? This is, I know what I'll do. I've got a way to have a roof over my head and food in my belly. Let's go. That's not what repentance is. He's not coming back to the family. He's not longing to be restored in relationship to his father. In fact, he's taking it for granted that he can't be. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so don't treat me as a son. I'm out of the family. I've already made my peace with it. He has a subtle expectation that his father would be wrong if he turned him away. How often do I apologize with the expectation that the person I'm apologizing to has to forgive me? I won't look directly at the person I have to apologize to the most. (laughs) I mean, isn't that a nice little trick? 
If you're two people who are trying to follow Jesus and, and we've been commanded, you know, to forgive as we've been forgiven, great. All I got to do is apologize and it's all good. That's called manipulation, people. That's what it is. I apologized. You have to forgive me. You'd be wrong to turn me away. So the son gets up and he makes his way. And look what happens in verse 21. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop. When he gets there, he actually arrives at his death. He actually arrives at his low point. He is the most lost in this moment. He has no plan. He realizes in this moment that his trick is foolish and ridiculous. He never gets to the point of the story where he asks his father to do the other thing. He can't. He's dead. If he had, he had, if he had finished his speech... He would not have known death and he would not have known restoration. I wonder, the father who, you know, gave him his assets at the beginning, I wonder if the father had heard the whole speech like, oh, okay, sounds like you're still on a journey. Sure, you can come be one of the hired servants. I don't know. So, repentance isn't those things. Repentance isn't finding ourselves Repentance isn't hatching a plan in order to reduce the punishment, in order to make our circumstances better. That is not what repentance is. Repentance is death. That's what repentance is. It's being totally lost. It's being totally out of options. It's realizing what we have done to the Father and caring more about his heart, than our own circumstances. That's where the sun lands. And after that, to participate in the Father's love, we get to revel in others' repentance. We get to be the friends who gather to celebrate. We get to practice for the, the messianic feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. But we have to practice. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? You see, the older son still makes the most sense to me. He does. Friends, put yourself in his shoes. I, I hope it's not too hard. Like, a lot of your inheritance has been given away and then lost, and then more of your inheritance is being spent to celebrate. You're seeing your little brother, your brother who spat in your dad's face in the finest robe with a ring on his finger at the center of the party. It's nonsense. How do we move from there to truly reveling that something that is dead is now alive again? I, I think the Pharisees and experts of the law until they realize that they have so departed from the heart of the Father, until they realize that they are as dead as the older brother, they will never allow themselves to be found. They will throw their own party. Thank you very much. 
And that's a point Jesus has been making over and over again in, in the last few chapters. He is basically setting it up so that the Messiah throws one party and the people who think they're too good for it, they throw their another one. That stinks. <laughs> Where everyone's just trying to one-up each other over there. The brother thinks that he's reliving a classic story too. Did you know that? He comes back, he's been working in the fields, he comes back and he hears the sounds of mirth, the singing and hollering and festivities of a party. This has happened before in the Bible. Did you know that? Moses, up on the mountain, is getting the law from God. God is speaking to him and Moses is writing it down. I don't know exactly how it's happening, but you know, Moses has been up there a long time. In fact, so long that the people of Israel think that he's dead. And so what do they do? They, they build a golden calf and they start to worship it and they throw a huge wild party, a party that sounds a lot like the younger son would really like it. There's strong evidence they were doing all sorts of kind of cultic sexual practices at this party. That's the noises that Moses heard. So just like Moses, the older son comes and he hears the singing and dancing. And what does Moses do? He goes in and he stops that thing. He, you know, the dad came home early and the teenagers have to scatter. I mean, that is what happens. I mean, Moses grinds up that golden calf, turns it into dust, mixes it in water, and makes all the kids drink it. Like, okay, oh, I caught you smoking a cigarette. You got to smoke the whole pack right now. I mean, that's, I don't know if anyone had to do that. I've heard those stories. That's what he does. I think the older brother thinks that that's what he's doing. He's Moses and his story. But it's not a golden calf at the center of the brother's party. It's the fattened calf. According to Luke, there's one form of lostness that belongs to the poor, the sinners, the left out, the broken, the ostracized. They've been excluded from the community of God because they bring it down. They bring it down according to the religious leaders. But the deepest lostness in Luke and in me, and in you, is when we exclude others because of their sins, their problems, their smells, their issues, their noises. When we do that, we are more lost than anyone. This lostness is alive and well in me. It is hard for me to revel in the grace of God for people that I don't think deserve it. It is. It's hard. I want to learn it, but it is hard for me to revel in it. Just find the right circumstance, and I'll be like, I don't know, that's theologically, I've got some uh, problems. So we need to understand the heart of the Father. We need to start at the feast. When the Father says, bring the fattened calf, and that line, the fattened calf, gets repeated three times in the story. It's a big deal. Why do they keep talking about the fattened calf? Isn't it just the food at the party? Well, friends, here's what it would sound like to you. It would sound like the father saying, bring the prize turkey and roast it. Why do we roast turkeys? Because it's Thanksgiving. Turkey is bad. No one wants to eat it any other time of the year. <laughs> it's so dry. <laughs> Covered in gravy. 
But anyway, that's not the point. We associate this one type of dinner with, the, with a special day. And the fattened calf is associated with a special day. When does a family kill the fattened calf and have a huge party? On one day a year, the Day of Atonement. That's what's happening. And it gets repeated three times for the father. He doesn't care what day it is on the calendar. His son has returned and the Day of Atonement is here. That's the party he's throwing. He's throwing a party to celebrate the people coming back to God, being restored to God even for sins they didn't know they had committed. Today, the day my son returned, the heart of the Father is, if you want to really understand it, friends, it is extremely conservative and extremely liberal. Jesus doesn't fit into categories. His stories don't fit into categories. His love is wildly liberal. It is the exclusive possession of those who are furthest away and deserve it the least. The redeemed sinners. His love is drawn to the broken and alienated. The people most ostracized by religion. These draw God's attention like metal to a magnet. The celebration seems irresponsible and the wrong people are wearing party hats. It is so, so liberal. It's so liberal. They've embodied the entire menu of vices and then they throw a party for it. What? How dare he do that? But his, his party is also extremely conservative. Here's what's happening. Heaven is not rejoicing over the lostness of the lost. It is rejoicing over the repentance of the lost. No angel is clapping with joy because a sheep finally found itself away from the flock. The son can only muster the truth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It must be the father who says, my son was dead but is alive again. The sheep is brought back to the flock. The gospel is the news of a God who is radically open to sinners, but never affirming of the sin that drives us away. He's radically open, but never affirming. We all die on the way in. We all die on the way in. Again and again and again, until the death of Christ has become our death. Until then, we depend on his death alone, friends. The one who went all the way, even to the point of repenting for us. You know who the atonement fattened calf is? It's Jesus. You know who the coin that paid for the party is? It's Jesus. And if they killed a sheep at the first party, probably the one that got lost, that's Jesus. He went into the far country for us. And he is the source of our feast. And that's what we celebrate week after week after week. Friends, you get to return to the party today. And when you eat this feast, this little appetizer of the feast, it is shaping you to be the kind of person who can show the world what he's like. You're welcome at the table. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that though we are no longer worthy to be called your son, though we are a lost coin and a lost sheep, though we are dead in our trespasses, Lord, you come searching for us. 
and you throw a party when we return. And now, Lord, we want to throw parties every hint, every moment of every chance we have when we see someone who was far away returning. Lord, give us the joy of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.